4: DGS Halloween coming up at 4.20. Brought to you by Portlandia. Big believer Cabernet Sauvignon. Go to Facebook to see a picture of the Bigfoot label. So you know what to buy. 20 bucks. Really good. Very solid cab. And uh really fun gift for anyone who's into paranormal or Halloween or Bigfoot or cryptids or things like that. Uh, let's do some audio.
2: All right. I've got a little bit of audio here. This has been all over the internet the past couple of days. This is a 21-year-old woman, young lady who is in tears because of her work week and how exhausting it is. So let's take a listen.
5: I know I'm probably just being so dramatic and annoying, but this is my first job, like my first nine to five job after college. And I'm in person and I'm commuting in the city and it takes me forever to get there there's no way i'm gonna be able to afford living in the city right now so that's off the table like if i was able to walk to work and it'd be fine but i'm not so it literally takes me like i leave here like i get on the train at 7 30 and i don't get home till like 6 15 earliest and then like i don't have time to do anything i don't i want to shower eat my dinner and go to sleep i don't have time or energy to cook by dinner either like i don't have energy to work out like that's out the window like i'm so upset oh my god nothing to do with my job at all but just like the nine to five schedule in general is crazy being in the office nine to five like if it was remote you get off at five and you're home and everything's fine but like i'm not home it takes me long to get home and like (sighs) Uh
4: uh-oh it's so interesting because i bet people my age go welcome to the real world and people her age go, yeah, for sure. I completely understand what you're
2: saying. You're right, because that's kind of how the Internet is split. I I looked at the original video and there was this comment after comment of other young people saying like, yes, sweetie, this is crazy. The 40-hour work week is completely outdated. You're speaking the truth. But then, so this went viral. So everyone's talking about it. It's all over Twitter. And a lot of it is people, you know, my age and older going, welcome to the real world. Uh, how are you going to survive if you're just crying after your 40-hour work week? So it's been interesting to see kind of the split in reactions mm-hmm. there.
1: It made me wonder, watching this last night, it made me wonder if when, when Rach and I are like, you know, you guys' age in a little while is it really, is it going to be different? Will, will the, will the future generations rather than, cause you know, our, Rachel and I, our generation, you know, we never looked at the 40 hour work week and thought like, you know, well in Europe, they only do 20 hours and they do four days a week. And, and, you know, we need to have it more like that. Once we start getting like Gen Z lawmakers, I wonder if they, it really will be like a different, mm-hmm. well, I can tell you, the 40 hour work
4: I can week? tell you being 59, um, th- I don't remember ever, ever uh, questioning, like, the the five-day work week. I mean, my first job, real win, was as an attorney working way longer hours than that. Yeah. Uh, but I don't—I remember the first time, like, on the radio show when it was like, someone suggests a four-day work week. Ha-ha. <laughs> it, it was just—like, this is just what you do. It's just like almost like it's a religion. Like, it's in the Bible somewhere. Like, I just never questioned it. You just did
1: it. I don't remember ever questioning it or anybody really like our age questioning it. Do you, Rach?
2: No, I think it is these youngins that want a different way of life. They're Um, probably going to
6: get it. Every generation has whiners, though. Like, I think there are plenty of Gen Zers out there just doing their work, and they're not whining about it on TikTok. I mean, this young lady, I was going to say girl, but she's not a girl because she's grown. If you don't like it, get a different job. Get really good at something so that you have leverage and can dictate some terms. But, you know, when when there are there are personalities like that, I yeah, generation I do think is a big part of it because when you're young, you're idealistic and you think, oh, it's going to be great. And then when it's not great, you're super disappointed. But that's no different than any of us had to deal with. But you control it. You don't have to work in the city. You could work closer to where you live if you can't afford to live in the city. You can get a different job or again, just make go pick something that you're going to be really good at, what do you and be think? good enough to have the power to say I'm not doing that.
4: So, like on TikTok, I see a whole lot of, uh, you know, work is not and should not be your life, and you know, balance time and family and all this kind of stuff. And I would I would never ever try to take that away from someone or spoil the party. But when I was say Phoebe's age, um, your work. What you were going to do for a job was absolutely as important as who you were going to marry or if you were going to have kids or what kind of house did you want to live in? There was just no, uh, boy, if this work thing weren't in the way, Mm -hmm. you know, and now it feels very much. And again, I'm not crapping on Gen Z or Alpha or anyone else. It just, you know, everything changes. But it was it was. um, And it wasn't necessarily a, a terrible thing. Mm-hmm. It was exciting, like yeah. to decide
1: what you were going to do, when and it was, was scary. You know what? What could I possibly get paid for? When I was a kid, it was never. It was never like, oh, what? What are my hobbies going to be? Where am I going to live? What's well, You know, who am I going to marry? It was never stuff like that. It was always, and drilled in by my parents. It was always, what's your career going to be? What are you? What do you want to be when you grow up? And the what do you want to be was not you know, do you want to be a good person? Do you want to be somebody who loves to, you know, collect baseball cards? It was, what's your job going to be?
2: Well, let me sound a million years old because I I have a theory here when it comes to Gen Z, and I don't think it's a flaw within them. I think it's just the way their lives have gone so far. We talk about, like, the college experience and just the experience of being a child now is so different than it was even when I was growing up. It feels like everything is very, very catered to the kids Which is great up until a point, up until childhood ends and then you have entered the real world and it's not so fun anymore. Whenever you've lived your entire life, and again, this is not to dunk on Gen Z, they didn't control it, but if you've only ever been catered to and had fun and had these amazing experiences up to and through college and then you graduate and suddenly no one's there catering to you anymore, it probably is a huge rude awakening and it doesn't surprise me that this young lady is crying on camera because she's struggling with the stress of just having a normal life well even like the average age
4: that uh, kids leave their parents home has gone through the roof i think it's it's in like 27 or something like that yeah
6: Mm -hmm. and i can get it i mean like things are different it is more expensive to live on your own now i mean you know, your, the percentage of your income that you need to spend on housing and things like that is greater than it used to be. So that's not anybody's fault in a, in a younger generation. You're just dealing with the cards that you've been dealt. It just, you know, when it's something, like if it's something that if you love the job, if it's that important to you, like you're willing to go into the city and do it, well, then the number of hours shouldn't be the primary concern If it's a, if it's like a dream job. And if it's not a dream job, you control it.
4: It's kind of what Greg said on line one. Greg, go ahead. You're on the air.
1: I was just listening and enjoying your comments about work and how our parents instilled it in us. And, you know, I think the, the adage is still true that if you, if you do something you really love, then you never really have to go to work but let's not confuse that with translating that it's worth something to other people in the free market. And that means that you can't dictate, you really can't dictate how much money you make if that's how you choose to work. And you can't really dictate like when you work and what days, all these other variables are just part of the job. That's it.
4: Yep. Yep. I, uh, I've been doing this job for 24 years now and I swear to God, this is true. It was only this last contract that I did that I really, really put together. Oh, there's like an equation, <laughs> like I bring in this much money. It's almost like when I graduated uh, from high school and I didn't know what GPA stood for, and I didn't, I didn't realize they kept your grades. And I've been doing this for a quarter century. And when I was doing my contract, they're like, "Okay, well, here's how much you bring in over the past three years." And I'm like, "Wow, you guys write that stuff down, huh?" And and so we're negotiating. And my point is to especially the young people out there, I don't care whether you're a radio show host or a professional football player or you work at Schnucks. You are making exactly what your employer thinks you're worth. And if you're in a job where you just you don't really bring in a lot of money and I, I don't mean this offensive to anyone. I've worked on farms. I've cut grass. I've worked at Mr. Donut. I've, I've done it all. But if you're working at Mr. Donut, if you're making donuts and selling them to people, you are necessary. You're a cog, but you're not a rainmaker. To make real money, you have to bring in real money. That's just all there is to it. You can be an artist. You can be a performer. You can can be anything in the world you want. But unless you're bringing money to someone or directly to yourself— you're not going to make a bunch of money. That's just the way it goes. I don't know anyone who makes a lot of money, and that's a different number for everyone, that doesn't bring in twice or three times that amount to their employer. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. I mean, wheels like the sports guys. It's insane to us yeah. normies that someone could cast checks for $20 million a year. But obviously, Mr. DeWitt or whoever it is, feels like well that guy is going to make me more money than 20 million otherwise they wouldn't do it
6: yeah that, that that's we can argue whether or not it should be that way but that is our world when we argue about whether or not teachers should make more police officers firefighters soldiers yeah you know I think we can all agree those are important jobs that quote would deserve money more than a baseball player or a musician or whatever but we have set it up for How many? What centuries? A couple centuries now. That your your take home pay is going to be related to what you make for your employer. What's your
1: revenue you bring in? Yeah, good players put tickets and seats, and uh, tickets and seats bring in advertisers.
6: Yeah, I mean, you know, when you talk about what the difference is, a ball player, an actor, whatever, they're not just an employee; they're also the product. That's right. Difference,
4: but there are jobs like like first responders and teachers and such that don't bring in revenue. But are so critical. Oh, they're the most And I think important. we've made a bad decision in society that, hey, we can pay these guys less because they don't bring in revenue. But if your ass is having a heart attack, <laughs> guess what? That guy's yeah. worth six figures. Yeah. who brings you back to life. Yep. <laughs> Welcome back, guys. DGS on KMOX. Happy Halloween season to you. So what we're doing here, as uh, hopefully you know, is we are celebrating the Halloween season, as we have every year in the DGS, by sharing spooky listener stories. We have one coming up at the bottom of the hour each day. I will be telling you one of my spooky stories to start things off. So... This is one of my favorites. And uh, I promise you, promise you, promise you, promise you, there's no spice in this. There's no exaggeration in this. I can't tell you that what I experienced was paranormal, but I can tell you that what I experienced is what I experienced. So here you go. Another thing that happened to me, which I couldn't explain, uh, was when I was a few years out of law school, uh, I had two roommates— Uh, Ricky and John, and we lived in the penthouse of this apartment building down on, God, Union. Uh, And it was fairly famous, you know, well-known building, nice building. And we lived, so the, the legend went, in the apartment where Harry Carey lived for part of the time when he was here in St. Louis. And what they did, so the story goes, is they took three apartments and they turned it into one for Mr. Carey and it was two levels and uh, one of the rooms was like this big gigantic solarium and of course I jockeyed to get that one for my bedroom and so if you picture it it's like you know it was was really nice we really couldn't afford it but we were stupid and young and there were three of us and we were splitting it and uh, we were young you know and everyone's dating people and we'd go in and out and you know home late and that kind of stuff and one night, I was home alone. I knew I was home alone. And it was, again, probably two in the morning, something like that. And I hear something downstairs. So I know one of the guys uh, is home. And I felt a little bit better because I've always been afraid of ghosts. And I've always been easily spooked. And uh, I was always more com- I was always more comfortable when someone was physically in the house with me in the apartment. And I hear someone walking down the hallway so you go up the stairs and there was a bedroom on the right John's bedroom there was a a bedroom on uh the right after that Ricky's bedroom and then there was mine the solarium all the way down the end of the hall and the hall was pretty big I mean it was the penthouse it was it was you know very long hallway and I remember hearing the footsteps turn into jogging turn into sprinting Sort of, I'm going to do it on the microphone, (laughs) so I don't know how this is going to sound, but sort of like this. Like We we, we all know what that sounds like, whether it's a Scooby-Doo cartoon or what have you, when someone just, they, they get a head of steam going. And so I'm like, here we go. One of my boys are home, and they're drunk, and I have to be in court tomorrow at eight in the morning, and this is going to suck. And whoever it was ran all the way down to my door and slammed against it and scared the hell out of me and then started banging on the door uh not saying anything not making any vocalizations but just really really banging on the door and at this point i'm pissed because we really didn't do that to each other i mean we we had fun we're all in our mid-20s but no one was no one was screwing with the other people like that because we all had jobs. We were all lawyers, and we had to get up in the morning and stuff. And so I spring out of bed, partially out of just being shocked, uh, primarily out of being really angry. And it wasn't like I was going to go fight my roommate or beat somebody up, but I was. I mean, there it, there was going to be a scuffle. I was gonna F-bombs were gonna be dropped and so from the time it took me to get out of bed to the door which realistically, two seconds maybe three seconds because I popped out of bed out of fear when they were banging on the door bam, 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 bam and by the time I got to the door and opened it there was nobody there and immediately I was freaked out because just the physics of it, right? Just you 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 live enough years on the planet, you get an idea of how long it takes someone to get from here to there and how long it takes someone to run into a room and hide. And so I, whenever I'm scared, I tend to, to be more of a fight than a flight. And I don't say that because I'm a badass or anything. I I just have learned over the years that when I'm startled, uh, when I'm scared, I tend to come out swinging. Um, And so I did that and I immediately went into Ricky's room. First one on the right, bed's made, he's not home. Uh, He was spending the night with his girlfriend. And then I went into John's room, same thing. And he also was overnighting somewhere else. So I was alone. And I stayed up the rest of the night because I was so freaked out. And then the next day when I told the guys the story, and and you know, like people can fool you. People can lie to you and put one over on you. But then there are times when you just really do get the sense of, oh, crap, these guys are telling me the truth. And they were both just so completely... Uh, Look dude I was with my girlfriend I was here I was doing that I was not home I did not come home Until after work The next day Kind of stuff And It also freaked them out Because they believed me Now could It have been Some sort of Like waking Nightmare or something Where uh, The The sounds Happened in my dream And I woke up Startled And I ran to the door Yes Again, just like the thing that happened with my truck. That could happen. That could have been what it was. But you all know that, like, I've had dreams like that. I remember one time I woke up when Phoebe was little, and uh, I saw, like, a 1950s wrestler, like Bulldog Bob Brown or something, uh, standing at the side of the bed, and I started throwing punches, and he started throwing punches, and I was fully awake. uh, And then all of a sudden that 1950s wrestler just disappeared and I've always written that off not as a ghost but as just you were having a waking nightmare kind of thing but those two things uh, really stood out for me Welcome back, guys. Happy Halloween. We're about to present to you our spooky campfire story from listener Chris. This happened to him while he was in the service. It's a great story. Hope you enjoy it. We'll be doing one of these stories each day up until Halloween. Then on Halloween, I will tell a few stories, and we will be presenting what we thought was probably the scariest story that you guys sent in. So here you go, Chris. Take it away. Happy Halloween, everybody. And remember, this is all brought to you by Portlandia Big Believer Cabernet Sauvignon. Sauvignon is a really good wine, great price point. You can't miss it. It has a picture of my beloved Bigfoot on the front. So thank you to Lore Distributing and Portlandia Big Believer Cabernet Sauvignon. On with the show.
3: I do have to preface this with I am a Halloween and paranormal junkie. Uh, kind of started with uh, my dad when I was a kid, uh, about 96, maybe 6th or 7th grade there. Uh, we built a coffin uh, that was big enough for me to fit in at the time, and, and I still have that coffin. That is our number one focal point for Halloween decoration. So, uh, early on, got got uh, got that ingrained in my head and in my spirit, and, and just carried it on into my adulthood. Um, I was lucky enough to uh, to be uh, or selected to join the Air Force um, just post just barely post nine eleven. Uh, and then sent down to Keesler Air Force Base uh, for my first duty station. Keesler Air Force Base is in Biloxi, Mississippi, uh, also the heart of Hurricane Zone, um, and an ancient Civil War story, Civil War Ghost. I mean, there's so much haunted history down there that it's it's, it's amazing. When I first joined uh, the Air Force, I was a civil engineer person, so I was actually a heavy equipment operator, backhoes and bulldozers, and uh, I really kind of fell in love with the fact that the civil engineering squadron there did an annual haunted house, and then Hurricane Katrina happened, which was you know obviously truly devastating and destroyed a lot. But looking on the brighter side of things, uh, for the Halloween side, uh, it opened up some buildings to us that we that were going to be destroyed uh, or, or demolitions because they had some serious impact, uh, serious damage. So I I started making uh, making contacts, or working my contacts, talking to my friends in the in the facilities management offices, and the uh, basically the folks who own the buildings on the base. Um, In 2000. It was either 2006 or 2007. Uh, I was lucky enough to uh, land one of the oldest dormitories uh, on the base. Uh, it was built in roughly 1967, uh, and it, it held a large majority of the technical training students that would be coming to Keesler. Uh, so at the time, they were just bridging into the communications uh, training world. They were they were starting to figure out uh, the Air Force's place and where we would go to the future. Um, So it was a really, really cool, really big uh, opportunity for for Keesler and for the the Biloxi area. So this building was built uh, to true 1967 standards. I mean, when you think of an old wartime barracks, uh, that's that's what it looked like. When we got the building, we were told uh, kind of an old story, right? Uh, There was rumor mills flying around like crazy, like, oh, this place is haunted, and there's this that happened, that that happened. Uh, The iPhone didn't even come out for a couple months after we had this haunted house, right? So we couldn't immediately go and fact check this stuff, we're just like, yeah, whatever, we we don't believe you. Uh, Until one of the facility managers actually took us to the third floor of the west wing of this building, which is the wing that held uh, strictly males. About halfway down this long corridor, there was nothing but two by fours and uh, a giant sheet of plywood. And so I asked the, the facility manager, I said, well, what's going on over there? What happened over there? He's like, oh, I'm sure you've heard the rumors. Um, so, of course, you know, you start to get uh, inquisitive and you're like, "Is this, this is really about that, you know, those old folklore stories. Is this place haunted? Did somebody die up here? Um, and he introduced me to the, the base historian. So the base historian had... Uh, a small a bit of information um, on what had happened in the facility, uh, and it, it did turn out that there was uh, a young airman who sadly hung themselves in that wing. Um, there was no real information as to why they closed off the wing, um, it, it, uh, so you naturally just start to assume that they closed it off because there, there was an incident there, they wanted to just get past it and not have to have people ask questions about it, um, but when you board something up, of course it makes people ask questions. So when I took over, um, kind of ownership ownership of the building, my immediate thought was, well, it's mine. I'm gonna go tear that tear that stuff down, and I want to go take a look at it. Like, why wouldn't I? So we got up there, we tore down the plywood, we tore down the two by fours, and I tell you, it was. It was literally like looking back into the past. I mean, we didn't find anything, you know, cool or spectacular, any any type of World War II or, or uh, uh, Cold War souvenirs laying around. But it was just a dust-covered, dark hallway um, that you would almost see in like one of those saw movies. Uh, it's you, you look in it and you're just like, am I really seeing this right now? Is this really on a military installation? That no, like, it's cool, whatever. Um, So we didn't have anything memorable happen. Um, You know, we didn't, as we walked through, we didn't have anybody pop out at us, or anybody talk to us, or touch us, or anything like that. Um, But we did start to see kind of changes with the way that our communication tools were working. So uh, back then, like I said, smartphones weren't really a thing. Uh, Cell phones, yeah, but that was back when they would charge you by the minute, so we weren't using cell phones to communicate as much. That um, we were using literally walkie-talkies, radios issued to us by the by the military, um, that worked perfectly fine, unless you were somewhere near that area. Um, so the area, be of of the side of the building there where we had just torn down a door and, and opened up to the ghostly forgotten past of that building. I guess would be a good way to say it. Um, so we started to have just. Oddly enough, I mean, it was it was just funny. It, it was entertaining to us that we randomly have static go across the radio, and you know, this this isn't the the 1960s Air Force where the radios weren't very trustworthy. I mean, these were, these were good pieces of equipment. We knew that they worked, um, and and even the radio shop. Whenever we first thought we were having issues with them, they're like, no, everything's good. They checked out. Um, so, I I found this interesting when I was doing research later on. Uh, using the, the old good old Google um, on, a, on a big old big screen, you know, uh, computer screen and all that stuff, trying to figure out some stuff about what happened with this building, so started doing research and, and, and found out that there was actually some paranormal um, references to radio static. Um, again, kind of went at it with a skeptic thing, like everybody's trying to make their name on the internet. Um, but I just found it ironic that I had experienced that and now here's somebody else on the internet saying that they had experienced that or they had at least heard the story Um, so as we were going through our construction process it would be just the strangest thing like I had at first I was like yeah whatever you maybe brushed up against a cobweb but throughout the course of like a two-week period of us working in there I had more than one individual say something touched my face and I'm like Okay, you guys are just... Now you're playing into the story, is, is my initial thought, right? Like, here we are building a haunted house in a haunted building where someone uh, unfortunately committed suicide, and now you're thinking that you're being touched. Um, I, that, I mean, of course, that was my initial thought, but then I'm like, well, wait a second, this is all starting to add up. Like, the things that I've heard, the stuff the base historian has told me, um, especially the feeling of being in the torn down wing, or the closed off wing, it all really kind of added up, right? We, n- we never had anything um that was really you know risky or dangerous or something go flying past our face or or you know a giant voice yelling get out or anything like that it honestly it just it kind of felt like a welcoming spirit that just wanted to play around um and I when I when I look back at it I'm kind of thinking like hey maybe this ghost was a Halloween fan and uh noticed that we were building a haunted house so they wanted to play they they wanted to be a part of the haunted house.
4: Welcome back, guys. DGS. Happy Halloween. We now continue with Chris's story about what happened to him while he was serving in the Air Force. So, Chris, did you spend time there in that area by yourself? And and if so, did you get any weird feelings?
3: Yeah, so I was actually a little bit too chicken. Uh, (laughs) I would not do it by myself. I'd like to to use the excuse, oh, well, I'm I'm in charge. Uh, I got other things to do. Um, I did have uh, one of my really good friends, uh, he's a he's a big old Texas boy, um, and he was like, yeah, I'll do it, whatever, which kind of started the idea. Like, you know, we were, we were all just kind of hanging out at the end of the night working one time and we we're like, hey, I give you 10 bucks if you go stay up there by yourself, you know, that kind of talk. And and so George uh, went up there, George Olivo went up there and stayed by himself. He had a flashlight. And he came back down and he's like, I, I just don't like it up there, I don't like the feeling. And he didn't, again, didn't have anything that, like, touched him, pushed him, moved him, talked to him. It was just that I don't like this feeling, um, which is kind of something that you you generally expect. If, if there's a presence of something, you're going to feel something, right? Uh, it may be, you know, just just a different in pressure, different in your body's texture, like your body telling you, hey, there's somebody next to you, but you're looking and there's nobody next to you. There's there's a, a lot of stuff that happens when you're in the military on the face There's a lot of people that are, that are the tough guy skeptics um, But then like you say like I said with my buddy who went up there uh, went up to the third floor of, of the building Who came down? He's like yeah, I don't like that like he was a big dude um, and a big tough guy I, Me on the other hand like I, I I'm not so that's why I joined the Air Force um, but also as far as like the um, like the superficial beliefs and stuff like that, you see a lot of heritage uh, because people are afraid that hey, like this. So, perfect example: we had a fire truck on the base that was donated from nine eleven. Um, it was a, a fire truck that actually responded uh, post the event, so we're talking days after the event. But it had some um, some s- s- signage on it that was dedicated to the firefighters of that truck that responded to 9/11, and the firefighters on the base were they weren't they wouldn't take it down uh, because there there's a well known fear in the fire department that if you take somebody else's stuff down that was dedicated to. A person who lost their lives or, or an incident like that that something bad's going to happen um same thing with fighter pilots you you pay respect to uh you know the previous pilot that had your plane um you pay you pay respects to um, fighter squadrons or bomber squadrons that had shut down because of that nostalgia and and, and because people are a hundred percent superstitious that if we don't if we don't pay respect to them something bad is going to happen to us and i've seen you know going on throughout my adult adult years I've, I've seen many things gone on many haunted tours done haunted alton um been to the Zach baggins haunted museum out there in las vegas i've done many of those things just to gain an understanding of, of uh what is this stuff because i am a believer I, I i do believe um that there are maybe entities or spirits that, that do remain behind, whether it be for a short time or a long time. Um, maybe there's unfinished business or just a, like I said, a remaining connection. Um, one of the things that I found really interesting about the the Alton stories is those, the, the granite stones um, that, that were used to make the old prison. And that and those stones are known to trap energy and to, to harbor energy. And, and it made me wonder what the building uh, at Keesler was actually made out of. and uh, obviously, I couldn't find out because it was torn down, but um, just looking back at the whole experience at Keesler, how many people had gone through there? How many experience there was? How many life-changing experiences? How many folks went through there and went off to uh, a military uh, involved situation and, and didn't come home. Um, so there's so many variables that could reconnect back to that building. I mean, me just telling this story 20 years later or almost 20 years later, I am connected to that building. Um, so I think there's just so many interconnected variables that it, it is more likely than not that ghosts do exist and do connect themselves to something from their past.
0: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance.